Lord, would you give grace now as we seek to understand this ancient text that can be confusing? We pray for wisdom and understanding, a clarity of mind, but most importantly, Lord, that you would conform our earthly worship to the worship we see going on in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. So what is the heavenly cry of the redeemed in heaven like? Once we get to verse 9 of this chapter, we start to see a scene in heaven, a vision of the heavenly throng worshiping God. The first eight verses, though, are important for us to look at because we, if we don't understand those verses, I don't think we're going to understand the rest of the chapter once we get to the heavenly vision. So we're going to take some time to work our way from verse 1 all the way through. My goal today is to get through about verse 10, and then two Sundays from now, we'll finish the rest of chapter 7. But just as an introduction, and I, I feel a little um, awkward because <laughs> we all come from different spaces. We've all heard the book of Revelation taught by a multitude of different people. The most popular view today is the futurist dispensational view. And folks, I don't hold that view. So if you hold that view, you're probably not going to agree with me today. <laughs> some, some interpretation has to be done when we come to chapter 7. And so I'm going to try to be as faithful as I can. But I realize, hey, I might get to heaven and find out I was all wrong when it came to this chapter. We have so many different views on the book of Revelation that you have to take a humble stance, I think, when it comes to this book. But anyway, when you come to the book of Revelation, there's some major views. There's the preterist view, and the preterist view sees the book of Revelation having been fulfilled in the first century, primarily surrounding the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And so they don't look for this being fulfilled in the future. They say it already has been fulfilled, except for the second coming. The rest of it's been fulfilled in the first century. So that's the preterist view. You've got the historist view, and this is the view that the book of Revelation has been fulfilled throughout church history. Certain symbols in the book represent particular people or events throughout the history of the church. Okay, so that's the historist view. Then you've got the futurist view, which is what we're most familiar with, especially if you have read or watched the um, Left Behind series. Or there, and there's a multitude of other movies and books, too, that you could read. But the futurist view looks at the events in this chapter from chapter 6 through 19 as being fulfilled in a seven-year period of time at the end of human history. So it's confined to that period of time. Um, I want to propose a different view than those three. <laughs> and this view is called the progressive parallel view or recapitulation. Uh, William Hendrickson, a Presbyterian um, commentator, wrote a book called More Than, Car uh, More Than Conquerors. It's a commentary in the book of Revelation. I thought there was much to commend this view. So I'm just going to explain it and you can, you can consider it. This view sees the book of Revelation as divided into seven different parallel sections. Parallel meaning they all cover the same period of time, from the first coming to the second coming. And you have seven of these sections in Revelation. Chapters 1 to 3, the seven letters to seven churches. Chapters 4 to 7. Chapters 8 through 11. Chapters 12 to 14. Chapters 15 and 16. Chapters 17 through 19. And then chapters 20 to 22. So imagine you go to a football game. Since it's Super Bowl Sunday, it's not hard to imagine, right? And someone puts a camera on the 50-yard line, 10 rows back. He's got a perfect uh, view there of the, the football field. But that's not the only camera. You've got another camera on one end zone, 
maybe 50 rows up looking down on the field, another camera on the opposite end zone, 50 rows up looking down on the field. You've got a Goodyear blimp with its camera looking down from on top. You've got a camera over on the sidelines where the coach is talking to the, the team members. Uh, you've got one that's focused on the offense, another one focused on the defense. You've got all these cameras going on. That's what I think we see in the book of Revelation. You have these, the same, the same events are taking place from different angles or different perspectives. So I hope that makes some sense to you. So that's why it's called recapitulation. For this reason, I don't think it's helpful for us to try to understand the book of Revelation in a chronological order as though each of these things follows chronologically from the one that we just read about. If you look at it that way, you're going to be very confused, because when you get to chapter 11, the very end of the chapter talks about the final judgment. The next chapter talks about the birth of Christ. So we go from the end of the world back to the birth of Jesus Christ. And this happens repeatedly throughout the book. In most of these chapters, you have a a judgment scene at the end of one of these major sections. Um, Let me see if I can find that. Yeah, at the end of chapter 11, there's major judgment. At the end of chapter uh, 14, there's another one. At the end of chapter 16, there's another one. At the end of chapter 19. So all of these major sections, you find uh, God bringing judgment towards the end of that section. And the final section, chapters 20 to 22, is from the first coming to the second coming, but then in this one, it actually goes further, and it shows us the new heavens and the new earth. So this is the one section that gives us even a greater glimpse It shows us what takes place after the second coming of Christ, the eternal state. Okay. Now, Revelation chapter 6, at the very end of that chapter, we also see a description of the end of all things and final judgment, which keeps coming up throughout the book. Um, Verses 12 to 17. I'll just read that for you. I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places." Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? So this is depicting these images that would give us the idea that the end of all things is coming down and people are afraid because they're going to have to stand before God and the Lamb in all of his fury against their sin. And they want the mountains and the rocks to fall on them so they can be hid from the wrath of God and from the wrath of Jesus Christ. So it's a picture of final judgment. Now, the, the question was, who is able to stand? The last phrase of chapter 6. Who is able to stand? I think chapter 7 gives us the answer to that. It tells us who is able to stand. Who is able to stand are those who are sealed. The bondservants of God who are sealed on their foreheads. These bondservants of God are numbered. Given a number of 144,000. They're depicted as coming from 12 different tribes of Israel. 
And as we're going to see in verse 9, I think we have the same group of people under a different camera angle in verse 9 on, and they're called there a multitude which no one could count from every tribe, people, tongue, and nation. So that's who's going to stand. The redeemed of the Lord, those bought by the blood of Christ, the saved. Only they will escape the wrath of God. The rest of the world will face it. Now in Revelation chapter 7, there's two visions. Verses 1 to 8, we have an earthly vision of this 144,000 sealed by God. And then verses 9 through the rest of the chapter, we have a heavenly vision I believe it's the same group of people just looked at in a different location and in a different way and receive their worship of God. So that's why we're here. We want to see their worship and we want it to inform us about how we can be worshipers that would bring delight and glory to God. So we're going to look at these two visions today. Let's look at the first one, the vision of the people of God sealed on earth, verses 1 to 8. Now verses 1 to 3. After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. These four winds that they're holding back are winds of destruction. They bring destruction to the earth. The wind, the sea, what else is it mentioned? And the earth. But before these four strong angels can let loose these winds to bring destruction on the earth, there's another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, this angel has the seal of the living God, and he cries out with a loud voice to the other four angels that are holding back these winds. He says, don't harm the earth and the sea until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. So he's not saying don't do it ever. Just don't let those four winds loose until the bondservants of our God have been sealed. Then let that let it loose. Let judgment come. So what is this all about? Let's try to dig into it. We have something similar to this description in Ezekiel chapter 9 verses 1 to 6. So if you want to take a look at that later, write it down and, and read it over. I'll just tell you what's going on there. In that vision, Ezekiel hears God command these executioners, there's six of them, to draw near these six men appeared before the Lord. They have shattering weapons in their hands. And among these six men is another man. And this man is clothed in linen and he's got a writing case. So he's got a pen in his hand. And God commands this man with the writing case to go through the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of all the people that sigh and groan over the abominations which were being committed in their very city. So those who are repentant, who are grieved by the sin of the world around them, put a mark on them. And then he tells those other six executioners, take your, uh, what do you call it, shattering weapon, and go and slay everybody else. Kill everybody else, but let those people that sigh and groan, let them be delivered from this judgment to come. That's similar to what we see going on here in Revelation chapter 7. The four winds are like the men with the shattering weapons. The, the winds are going to bring devastation and destruction to the earth, but they can't do it until the bondservants of God are sealed. So what is this seal that we read about here in Revelation chapter 7? What is it talking about? Well, number one, it's a seal of protection. That's easy to discern, isn't it? Because they're protected from the four winds. Um, so all who had this 
particular seal on their foreheads would not be destroyed, would not reap the devastation of these four winds about to be turned loose in the world. So it's a seal of protection. Number two, it was a mark of ownership. And we know that because we have to go over to Revelation 14 to see this. But there's another description of this group of 144,000 over in Revelation 14. There in verse 1, John says, Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne, and before the four living creatures, and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And no one, or excuse me, no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. Now notice in this description, it tells us that the seal is the name of God and the Lamb that is inscribed on their foreheads. So, they're owned by God. It's kind of like if you're a rancher and you take a brand and you brand your cattle with your particular brand, you're saying, that's my cow. <laughs> that, these are my steer. I, I purchased them and I branded them to show everybody else, make no mistake, these are mine. Well, these, these 144,000 have a seal of God and it's his name stamped into their forehead. They're his. It's, so it's a mark of ownership. I don't think personally that this is a visible mark we're supposed to understand. I think it's an invisible, God sees it, God knows who has his name stamped on their foreheads, but we don't. Sometimes we make mistakes thinking that person surely can't be a Christian and maybe they are, <laughs> or maybe that person is a Christian and maybe he's really not, but God knows, the Lord knows those who are his. Um, is there any place else in the New Testament that we read of a seal? It might give us help when we come to Revelation 7. Come on, you Bible scholars. <laughs> Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with what? The Holy Spirit of promise. These folks in the New Testament have a seal. The seal is the Holy Spirit. And then in Ephesians 4.30, he says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Again, the Holy Spirit is the seal of the believer. 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Three times we're told in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is the one who has sealed us for the day of redemption. And so this is a mark of protection, it's a mark of ownership, and it's a mark of security because we're sealed until the day of redemption, our final deliverance when we're glorified. The Holy Spirit is the seal, and the Holy Spirit inside the believer is invisible. I can't see the Holy Spirit, neither can you, but God knows where he's at. God knows which people are indwelt by his spirit as he looks out over this earth. So it's an invisible seal. And I believe 
it's likely, very likely, that when we read about in the book of Revelation is also an invisible seal. This mark, uh, th this mark that we're told here in Revelation chapter 7. The indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And those who have the seal will not experience God's wrath. Doesn't mean they won't face persecution. They will. They're going to face the devil's wrath, but they'll never have to face God's wrath because Christ has already borne God's wrath on their behalf. That's what propitiation is all about. Christ is our propitiation. So there we've got verses 1 to 3. Now let's move on into 4 through 8. Verse 4 mentions, And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000. That phrase, those who were sealed, here's a, a little bit of an English lesson for you. Well, actually Greek. That phrase is in the perfect tense. And the perfect tense means that it indicates a past action with ongoing results. So that's what we mean when we look at something in the perfect tense. It happened in the past, but it, the results flow from it, and they continue to flow from that past action. It stresses permanence. And what that tells us is that once God has sealed someone, they're never going to be unsealed. They're sealed forever. They're sealed permanently by the Holy Spirit. Now, who are the people that are sealed? We're told there's 144,000 of them, and there are 12,000 from 12 different tribes of Israel. All right, let's dig into this. This is where it gets a little dicey. <laughs> um, the, the common interpretation today is that these are ethnic Israelites, Jews, who are being saved during a seven-year tribulation period before Christ returns. Does that ring a bell with anybody? The, and then, you, uh, anyway, that's, that, that's the common interpretation. These are Jews being saved during the final seven years of Earth's history. I disagree with that view. I don't think that's what it's talking about. Number one, because in verse three, these 144,000 who are sealed are called the bondservants of our God. You say, well, Brian, so what? Well, let's look at the rest of the book of Revelation and see how that phrase is used, the bondservants of our God. In chapter one, verse one of Revelation, well, let's just turn there. He says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. So his bondservants in Revelation 1.1 are talking about us, the, the church, believers down through the ages. We're the ones that this book of Revelation has been delivered to, and these were the ones that uh, Jesus Christ is showing us of what is going to take place. And then again in chapter 11, verse 18... It says, and the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. So there the bondservants of God are coupled with prophets, saints, and those who fear the name of God. Well, who is that talking about? The church. It's talking about believers, not necessarily just ethnic Israelites, but believers of all kinds. Okay, let's go to chapter 19, verse 2. Well, we'll start in verse 1. After these things, I heard something like 
a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who is corrupt in the earth with her immorality and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. Well, who are these bondservants whose blood will be avenged one day? I submit to you that those are the martyrs of the Christian church down through the history of the church from the first century to the final century. The ones who have died for Christ. And then chapter 19 verse 5. A voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him. The small and the great. These are the ones who fear God. Small believers, great believers. All stripes in between. Or then chapter 22 verse 3. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. Who are those bondservants that are going to serve God and the Lamb in the eternal state after Christ returns? Is it just Jews? Is it just ethnic Israelites? No, it's all of God's people. All the redeemed are going to serve him in the new Jerusalem, in the new heavens, in the new earth. So, number one, that's, that's the first reason, I think. Remember, the book of Revelation is written in symbols. We're not intended to, we, we should not take apocalyptic literature, which is what this is, in a wooden literal fashion, we're going to get off. We're, we're going to make mistakes in our interpretation. So, I think it's much better to look for the symbol, and what does the symbol look to? What does it represent? Okay. Number two reason I don't think this is talking about Israelites is because the Bible says in verse, well, Revelation 7, verse 3 and 4, that they were purchased. I'm sorry, it's not Revelation 7, it's Revelation 14. Revelation 14. Verse 3 says... These 144,000, they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. Verse 4 says, These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they've kept themselves chaste. They are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. Now, do we read anywhere else in the book of Revelation about people being purchased? And you folks who were here last Sunday, you should know this. Because <laughs> we went over this last Sunday. It's in chapter 5, verse 9. Where it says, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Amen. So this isn't just from one nation, the Jewish nation. This is from every nation under heaven. They've all been purchased by the blood of Christ for God. So that's the second reason why I think it's better to understand this, not simply in terms of ethnic Israelites, but of God's redeemed people, whether they're Jew or Gentile. Why then are we told that these are 12,000 from 12 different tribes of Israel? Why, why, why would God confuse us with this language if it's not intended to be strictly ethnic Israelites? Well, let's see if we can make sense of it. In the book of Revelation, um, 
numbers often have a symbolic meaning. The number seven and the number 12 comes up over and over and over. The number seven is found 55 times in this book. There's only 22 chapters, but it occurs 55 times in the book. There are seven churches here, seven lampstands, seven stars, seven spirits, seven horns, seven eyes, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven angels, seven peals of thunder, seven heads, seven plagues, seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, and seven kings. Seven's everywhere in this book. And you'll find as you read it that seven stands for completeness or fullness. That's why there are seven spirits before the throne. There's not seven Holy Spirits. There's one Holy Spirit who, who manifests himself in his fullness in various ways. The number 12 also occurs over and over in this book. There's 12 gates, which represent the 12 tribes of Israel in chapter 21, verse 12. There's 12 foundation stones on which the names of the 12 apostles are written in 2114. In the New Jerusalem, we have the tree of life. Guess what? It bears 12 kinds of fruit. Chapter 22, verse 2. God's throne is surrounded by 24 thrones. Well, 24 is 12 plus 12. 12 sons of Israel, 12 apostles in the New Testament, all the re- representative of all the redeemed. The wall of the city happens to be 144 cubits thick. 144 is 12 squared. 12 times 12. And that's in chapter 21, verse 17. And we also find that the city, this new Jerusalem, is pictured as a cube. 12,000 stadia. And we don't use stadia anymore as a measuring, but that's what they, how they measured in the first century. That's chapter 21, verse 16. So, here we've got 12,000 from all these 12 different tribes. The numbers, to me, seem a little bit too perfect. Why not 11,974 people from Reuben and 12,472 people from Judah? Why is it exactly 12,000 from all of these 12 tribes? I think the numbers are symbolic, not to be taken literally as a statistical number, but they symbolize something. So what would the number 144,000 symbolize if it does? Just follow with me. Just (laughs) follow with me for a while here. Okay. 144,000 is 12 squared, 12 times 12, times 1,000. 112, representing God's people under the Old Testament, the 12 tribes of Israel. 112, representing God's people under the New Covenant, the 12 apostles of the Lamb. 12 by 12, times 1,000. And in the book of Revelation, high powers of 10 are used to describe something very big or vast great quantities of people. It's used to describe the millennium, the thousand year reign. And I know we're all over the map when it comes to whether you're on mill, post mill or pre mill. And we don't have time to get into all of that. But there are many scholars who believe that the the number thousand simply means a very big number to to that ancient culture. So you've got 144, 12 times 12 times 1,000, meaning all of God's people from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and it's so big you can't even count them. Well, that's exactly what he tells us in Revelation 7, 9. Nobody could count this group of people that were in heaven. Why does God use images of Israel to represent all of God's redeemed people? I believe it's because all of God's Redeemed people are the true Israel of God. The spiritual is not the ethnic Israel. We're, we don't, we can't, 
we can't uh, trace our, our roots back to Abraham necessarily, but in Rev uh, Romans chapter 4, we're told that those who are of faith are of their father, Abraham. So if we have faith in Jesus Christ, we're sons of Abraham and we're children of God. So we're the true Israel. Now, in the Old Testament, Israel was God's chosen covenant people. But yet in the New Testament, the church is now God's chosen covenant people. So all those redeemed by blood, from Adam to the last person on earth, I believe is represented in these 144,000 people here. And if you want to disagree, that's fine. <laughs> but I'm just sharing what I think it's what it means, and you can have to do your homework on this. So to summarize all of this, what is this vision intended to teach us? I think it's intended to teach us that God is going to pour out his wrath and his judgment on the world, but his people have been sealed, and they're going to be protected. They will not face the wrath of God because Jesus Christ has already faced it in their behalf. And they have been delivered from the wrath to come. Amen. Now, isn't it interesting that the devil likes to ape God? The devil likes to mimic God. For example, God has a seal on the foreheads of his bondservants. Well, the devil has the mark of the beast on the foreheads of his bondservants as well. If you looked at um, Revelation 13, you read about that mark of the beast. It's very famous. Everybody knows about the mark of the beast. Right? Um, what, what is this mark that's going to be on the foreheads or the hands of people who follow the beast? Well, in verse 17, it says, He provides that no one will be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. What's the mark on the forehead of the bondservants of God? It's God's name. What's the mark of the beast? It's his name or the number of his name on the forehead of those who follow the beast. In other words, I think we're seeing two kingdoms represented. The kingdom of Christ with his name on his redeemed and the kingdom of Satan with his name on all those who are lost. You have, it's actually pretty simple when you look at it this way. Now just as the seal of the Holy Spirit is invisible, I personally think that this mark, too, is invisible. It's not something that we should be looking for physically. I mean, I know a lot of people think that's what's going to happen. And maybe I'm wrong. If, if we ever come to a point where someone says, you've got to get this mark on your forehead, I'm not going to take it. <laughs> I'll say, okay, I missed that one. I misinterpreted that passage. But at this point, I just don't, I just don't see it as outward, visibly, and physical. And so everyone in the world has some kind of a mark. It's either the mark of God or it's the mark of the beast. Right now, as God looks down on the world, everyone's got a mark on their forehead. What mark do you have on your forehead right now? Are you owned by God? Or have you been branded by God as you are my child? My wrath will never face you. Christ has borne your judgment and, your, and the wrath of God on your behalf. You're mine. I, I branded you my very own. So there we've got Revelation 7, the first vision. It's an earthly vision of 144,000. Now let's go to verse 9 and following. We've got another vision, and this is of the people of God worshiping in heaven. 
After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. Now who is this great multitude which nobody could count in verse 9? I believe it's the same group that we just saw described as 144,000 on earth. Well, why in the world would I think that? Well, remember, if, just go back with me to chapter 5. Remember when John was weeping greatly because there was no one who could take the book and break its seals? And one of the elders said, stop crying, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, he has overcome so as to open the book and to break its seven seals. So he heard something. He heard the elder tell him, don't weep, the lion has, broke, has uh, overcome so that he can break the seven seals of the book. So he heard something, and then when he turned to look, he doesn't see a lion. What does he see when he looks? He sees a lamb. But of course, that is the same person. The lion is the lamb, just seen from two different angles, two different cameras, looking at the same person. And when, when you look at him in his earthly ministry, he was a lamb. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When you look at him from his second coming perspective, he's a lion. He's coming to destroy his enemies. So, here, back in chapter 5, he hears something. When he looks to see what he had heard, he sees something different. Same thing here in chapter 7. He hears that there's 144,000 Israelites. 12,000 from all 12 tribes. He turns to look. He doesn't see Jews. He sees, well, here we go. He sees in verse 9, a great multitude which no one could count. So it's not 144,000 now. You can't even count up all these people. And they're not just from the Jewish nation. They're from every nation under heaven. So again, two different cameras looking at the same thing, having different perspectives. So first we see this group on earth, sealed and protected from God's judgment. Now we're seeing them, I believe, in heaven, and they're worshiping the Lamb in heaven. Now what do we learn about this group? Well, first thing is that there's a great multitude, a great multitude which no one could count. This is great because Jesus taught that the gate is narrow, and the path is also narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. So sometimes we can get discouraged. I mean, you look around at the world and how many real Christians are there in this place? And we're supposed to be a Christian nation, man. I, I'm, I'm happy if I can find one out of a hundred that really knows Christ. And you can get discouraged by the fewness. But when you get to heaven, you're going to see a group of people so big, you'll never be able to count them all. All the redeemed of all the ages will be gathered around the throne on that day. And we're told they're from every nation, just like back in chapter 5, verse 9. Every people group on the planet, every tongue, every tribe, they're all represented. And this time, they're standing. Now back in chapter 5, they were falling on their face before the Lamb. Now they're standing. And I think it's because they've got a job to do. They're to serve Him forever. 
They are to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. They stand to worship. In, chap in chapters 4 and 5, they're on their face. Now they're standing up. And that shows us that you can worship in more than one posture, folks. It's wonderful to get on your knees and on your face. And we ought to do that. You know, you and your private time should get, go away by yourself and get on your face and humble yourself before the Lord. And if we have room in this place, do it here too. <laughs> But, but there's also a time and a place to stand and just exult in the glory of God and give him praise and worship. And that's what we see happening in this particular place. We also see that they're clothed in white robes. I love it. The beautiful doctrine of justification by faith, that we are declared righteous by a holy God, not for anything that we have done, but simply because of Jesus Christ. He, he has wrought out for us a perfect righteousness, spotless and pure and unblemished in any way, and he gives that to you as a free gift when you put your faith in him. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. We, we put on the white robes when we come to know Christ. And now we can stand in his presence without being kicked out. We're, we're accepted in the beloved. We belong there. These white robes show us that we are owned by him. And we're, and we're welcome for all eternity. What makes these robes white? How do, I mean, we were born into this world with dirty robes unclean, right, filthy. Our sin has made us polluted in the sight of God. We don't, none of us by nature stand before God clean. How do we get these white robes? Well, chapter 7 verse 14 says, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. We think of blood staining something this blood cleanses. This blood takes something that's black and makes it pure white. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 1, 7. Or Isaiah 1:18. Come now and let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, which is a deep red, they will be as white as snow. Don't you just love to go to the snow and look out on it and it's so pure, almost blinding when the sun hits it at certain directions. That's what we're going to be like in the presence of God. Not because we're so righteous in and of ourselves, but because He is. And what He has done is put to your account through faith. Then the next thing we see about these people are they're holding palm branches. Now this is good and it's going to take me a little time to unpack this for you, but it's really good. They're holding palm branches. In ancient times, when a great victory had been won, the people would greet the returning soldiers and the general by waving these palm branches as they came back. Now, in about the year 160 BC, for you history buffs, you're going to know what I'm talking about. The Syrian army, under the leadership of a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes, took over the city of Jerusalem, where all the Jews, that was their holy city. He took it over, he invaded their temple. He slaughtered a pig on their altar and he desecrated it. And for three and a half years, he set up idol worship in their temple. And this infuriated and enraged the Jewish people, but they didn't feel like there was anything they could do about it. They, there were just a few people and here this invading army was so great and so mighty. But after three and a half years, there was a man amongst the Jews who was called Judas Maccabeus. His nickname was Judas the Hammer. 
he gathered himself a bunch of, um, like a guerrilla warfare. He, he, he made this army up from the Jews, and they went and they overcame the Syrians. They took back their temple. They removed all the idols from the temple, and they cleansed it. Now, when that happened, there was a great rejoicing in the city of Jerusalem. First Maccabees is a book that we don't have in our Bible. Orthodox and Catholics have this book. They believe it's scripture. Protestants don't. But anyway, this is what it says. First Maccabees 1351. The Jews rejoiced with thanksgiving and with branches of palm trees and with harps and cymbals and hymns and songs because there was destroyed a great enemy out of Israel. So they're waving their palm branches because they're so happy that this Syrian general has been deposed. He's gone and they can have their worship of God back. Okay. About 200 years later, we see another man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's kind of like this Judas Maccabeus because he's also a conqueror. He's a champion of his people. He's the king of Israel. He comes to the city of Jerusalem and what does he find in the temple there? Desecrated. The money changers. He finds all kinds of corruption going on within the temple. What does this second Judas Maccabeus do? He comes into Jerusalem and all the people are waving palm branches as he comes into the city and they're yelling, what's the word? Hosanna. Hosanna. That word's save now. Save. Save now. Of course they meant save us from the Romans, but we understand that he saves us spiritually from sin. So he comes into the city amidst all the praises of the people and the waving of the palm branches. And the first thing he does after this is he goes to the temple and he cleanses it. Kicks out all the money changers and those that are corrupting the worship of God there in the temple. They asked save now. He is going to save them. um, Not in the way they expect and not in the very time they expect but by his own blood. He's going to consecrate and cleanse the temple. And remember in the New Testament, who is the temple of God? It's the people of God, the church. We are the temple of the living God, the Bible says. He cleanses us when we exercise faith in Him by His blood. He starts removing the idols from our life. There's there's just all these parallels and sparks going on in my head when I look at first the, the first cleansing under Judas Maccabeus, the second one under the Lord Jesus Christ, and now when we get into the heavenly scene, John sees this great multitude of people all waving palm branches. Now John was there on the day Jesus rode in on the donkey when all the palm branches were being waved. He was there. He saw it. He was a witness to all that. And he says, I'm seeing it again. It's like deja vu. It's happening again. Everybody's waving their palm branches. Now, why would they be doing that? It's because the worshipers in heaven are signifying that their victory over their enemies has been won by this great champion, Jesus Christ. Just like Judas Maccabeus destroyed their enemy, so too Jesus Christ has destroyed our enemies of sin and death and hell and Satan. He's our hero. He's our champion. And we wave the palm branches to signify our worship and praise of Him. And it says they cry out in verse 10. And they cry out with a loud voice. That's also the present tense, and in the Greek that means it's ongoing, continuous activity. They didn't cry out for a couple minutes and stop. This is denoting eternal praise and worship of God. They continue to cry out forever and ever to the Lord. And what are they crying out? 
verse 10, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's what they're crying out. This multitude that nobody could count, that are wearing the white robes, that are waving the palm branches, salvation to our God. Now what do they mean? That God needs to be saved? That God's a sinner? No, no, they're not talking about that. God isn't lost and God doesn't need to be saved. They're saying God is the source of our salvation. He has secured our eternal salvation. We ascribe glory to him for his saving work on our behalf by sending Jesus Christ, his son, into the world on a mission to redeem lost sinners. And now in heaven, they're glorifying God for his work of mercy on their behalf of saving them. These worshipers are extolling God for salvation. No one in heaven is boasting about what they have done. No one in heaven is boasting about the right use of their free will. That that's why they're there and that other guy didn't make it. I made the right choice. I wised up. I, I just, there's something different about me. Nobody there is glorying in their faith or their repentance. What does Paul say? I'll never boast save in the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ. Paul had the same heart as these worshipers in heaven. They're glorying and boasting in the cross of Jesus Christ. So that's what we find in chapter 7. We'll we'll look at the, the second half next time, but let's just draw some concluding thoughts from this chapter. One is let's worship now as we're going to be worshiping then. Jesus Christ and his saving work should be at the center, the, the focus of worship. Let's boast that our salvation is all, not mostly. It's all of God. It's all of grace. We haven't contributed one iota to this. We, we were lost and hellbound and dead in our trespasses and sins when he got a hold of us and turned us around. He deserves the glory and the credit 100%, folks. It's all of grace. He purified our filthy robes and he made them white in the blood of the Lamb. He destroyed our enemies. He has kept us by his grace amidst all of our trials, our sufferings, our persecutions, and all glory for now and forever is due unto Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away our sin. That's what I'm learning from this chapter in chapter 7 of the book of Revelation. Lord, thank you for your saving work. We are so humbled, Lord, even to to fall on our faces and cast our crowns before you seems like too much, too much to do, Lord, that we would ever be able to grace your presence, to walk into your throne and be perfectly accepted in the beloved is just amazing, Lord. Lord, out of this fallen mass of mankind, you have chose us and redeemed us and adopted us and sealed us with your spirit. Jesus Christ, you shed your blood for us. You saved us out of every tribe and people and tongue and nation on the planet. And all glory and honor is due you, Lord. And teach us, Lord, teach us now to be worshipers. That every day, every every part of our life could be offered up to you as worship. And we ask in Jesus' name these things. Amen.